episode 20 of Rigged, Chris, Jamie, and Ilias continue to review the interviews the Hinton lab chemists gave to the state police and OIG. Of all the chemists interviewed, only Annie Dukin expressed any kind of remorse for sending people to jail based on tainted evidence. Enjoy episode 20 of Rigged. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and give us a review. I think when they go further into her interview with the OIG, or maybe it was one of the other chemists, it turns out Dukin was saying that she had access to a federal grant and got training. And then someone was, someone else was like, oh, can I do that too? And she was like, no. And it turns out because she never actually did that, right? Yeah. She, said it was, she said it was in like North Carolina and it was in Virginia or something like that. Like Right, right. Exactly. Virginia. <laughs> She's just like, she's the worst con artist ever. She's like, (laughs) you know, she doesn't even bother looking back. She, she's just, it's a confidence scheme. As Luke Ryan has said, this is all a confidence scheme and Annie Dukin knew it. And she was the biggest con man of them all. So, uh, Daniela Fresca, uh, she worked with, um, she worked with Dukin for eight years. She worked with her since Dukin started. Uh, and she said that Dukin shared a lab room for eight years um, with her. And they worked together until Dukin went and worked for Julie Nazif. <laughs> well, and, and that must be the, the, is that post-benching? I mean, what does that mean to work with the, 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 the. Um, yeah, that's what she's referring to. I think. Yeah. yeah. They, they all thought that she went in and started working for, for Julie Nazif, which she essentially did. Um, when Dukin was at her bench and Fresca was at her bench, uh, they would talk and joke around. They talked about testing color tests, what crystals looked like, general scientific things. And Fresca said that, uh, Dukin took care of her own work and Fresca took care of her own work. Okay. Uh, Fresca advised that there was a brown piece of paper that divided Fresca and, and Dukin's work area, that it was put up by a previous chemist, Sandra Lipschitz. It was left up after Lipschitz left. Fresca never thought that the paper was put up to hide anything. Sure. (laughs) Fresca felt Dukin was a good worker, and Fresca never observed anything out of the ordinary or wrong with Dukin. Even when the brown paper came down, she did not notice anything unusual. Fresca states she occasionally saw Dukin using her microscope. (laughs) Occasionally. Occasionally. Like, maybe once. Fresca added that she was busy doing her own work and did not consistently observe Dukin. And she saw Dukin doing microcrystallis tests. However, she could not say if Dukin did one every time <laughs> per requirement. Fresca said Dukin was very fast. Dukin would show up with bins of stuff and say Betsy gave it to her. And she said that, see, I think that Betsy was, anyways, and it's all speculation. I don't, I don't really want to say, but it's, I mean, honestly, if she was, there's no, you don't do this stuff by yourself. You don't do this stuff by yourself. I mean, if if you know that the lab needs funding dependent upon turnaround time and processing samples quickly, you know, it's not just a chemist who is falsifying tests. Like someone in the evidence office has to understand that she's processing more samples than anyone else ever except for Farrick in 2004. Um, 
you know, someone's going to pick up on that if they're going in time after time after time, doing way more than any other chemist and way more than the lab supervisor thought was possible. Right. It's so, so let's go to Kate Corbett. Kate Corbett noticed that Annie Dukin did a lot of samples. And she talked to Annie about how she could do so many samples. And Duke had replied that she wouldn't take lunch breaks. There you go. That covers it. Duke would, would do things that Kate Corbett wouldn't do. An example of what is what happened with a couple of months prior to Kate Corbett going on maternity leave in March 2011. Kate said that at that time in the two chemist system, the first chemist was required to compile a batch sheet on the mass spec instrument. Then the batch sheet uh, was to be initialed by a second chemist. On a number of occasions, Duke can put Corbett's initials on the sheet as a second chemist. Nobody else would put uh, Corbett's initials on the batch sheet. And she feels that Annie did this because she knew Kate was going on maternity leave in a couple months. And she said that Annie put Kate's initials down many times on the bench sheet. Oh, no big deal. Can we just go back to that lunch break thing for a second? So, you know, if someone is not taking lunch, right, they can obviously do more work. Like if you have a granola bar or whatever at your desk, great. Yeah. But you're not going to be able to produce twice the number of tests as every other chemist in the lab. And so you've got Farrak doing four to five times more than everyone else. Duke and doing three to four times more. And then Saunders is doing double to three times more than everyone else. And you can't just explain that by lunch breaks. Right. Well, a lunch break is an hour, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, so Kate... But you, can't, you can't just like fit an extra month in there, right? <laughs> I know. It's not a month's worth of time. So if you, if you, so a month, so a lunch break is one hour or maybe a half an hour, but let's give them an hour. And so during a week, that's not even a full day. That's, that's five hours for the week. So maybe, maybe bit, everybody took three hour lunch breaks like they do in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> With the fargois. Uh, Kate Corbett noticed that Annie Dukin did a lot of samples and, oh, actually, I, I already read that. Okay, so uh, Corbett would not see the samples and did not set them up on the mass spec runs done by Annie. Kate would see the data when Annie put it on her desk to look at. Kate advised that it was all right for Annie to put her own uh, run on the mass spec, but she would not have put Kate's initials down. It should have been Annie Dukin's initials only. Uh, Kate advised that Annie Dukin was, uh, made it appear that she had permission to do more stuff in the lab than anybody else in the lab. She was able to look at Betsy O'Brien's computer to see the database and would look up information on Betsy's database. This Betsy said that she never let her do that. She told investigators she didn't train her. Like, how do the, how does the state police not go back to Betsy after Kate uh, testified and was like, okay, what the hell? Why, why was she looking at your, we have people here saying that she was looking at your computer and you told us that she wasn't trained to do it. You know, what, what strikes me as funny at the moment, I never thought of this before, but like, why didn't Kate Corbett use her sociology degree, which is the study of human behavior to figure out that something was amiss in the lab? <laughs> For real. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. 
and you know what? I've looked at a bunch of Kate's emails as well. I have a ton of her inbox and she was also buddy, buddy with the cops too, with, with the, with the DAs, you know, they, they all, all these chemists celebrated whenever someone would take a plea deal or, you yeah. know, or, or got convicted. They'd say, congratulations. This is awesome. You know, like it's pretty obvious what was going on. Yeah. I'm just reading straight from Wikipedia. Sociology is the study of human behavior Sociology refers to social behavior, society, patterns of social relationships, social interaction, and culture that surrounds everyday life. So, like, I mean, like, if your focus in school was on that, like, wouldn't you realize how this person is lying to people every day, manipulating people? It it, it, it just... It's mind-blowing. Well, I I think she knew because her resume... (laughs) (laughs) So Kate never noticed any bad science or dry labbing by Annie. She was she was not in the room when Annie would do her work. And Kate was on maternity leave from March 2011 to September 2011. That is a long maternity leave. When Kate came back, Annie was not talking to anyone. Kate said that Annie was told uh, was not allowed in the lab in the mass spec area or be allowed to pull data for discovery, even though she was doing all of those things. On the contrary, Kate stated she would see Annie doing all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. How does she not say, guys, why did you just tell me she's not allowed to do it? I saw her doing it the other day. I mean, I, we have all of the statistics. Annie did 70 samples one month after she was benched. 70. When this happened, Kate would tell Peter Pirro and Peter Pirro would tell Chuck Salemi and then what? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, <laughs> Corbett said that prior to her maternity leave, a chemist would go into the evidence room, get samples and go into the little room off the office, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, right there is just, okay. And so here's, this is where we'll, um, so here's Andy Dukin's interview. And so Annie Dukin resigned from the DPH in March of 2012, pending an investigation. Dukin admits she was at fault and responsible for the 90 samples that she removed from the evidence office in June 2011. She misses the samples were not properly assigned to her, not entered into the computer by evidence officer, and entered into the evidence logbook. Although Dukin claims... Uh, not to recall removing the bin of samples from the safe, she admits she must have done so. <laughs> <laughs> that is the single dumbest statement I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was either that or a ghost or something. I don't know. <laughs> See, maybe it was haunted. Maybe the, maybe the lab was haunted. No one's ever done a paranormal investigation into the Hinton lab. She admits, um, so, as it is the only logical explanation. There you go, Annie. As, as she just does not remember. She denied having the code or key to the evidence safe. Dukin admitted that after being questioned by, about the mishandling of samples by Julie Nazif, uh, Dukin falsely filled in the blank entries in the evidence logbook and forged Gloria Phelps' initials on the 90-plus logbook entries. She stated that this was the only time she ever took samples improperly from the evidence, sure, besides the Maybreach office or falsified the logbook. Yeah, right. 
Dukin was shown a copy of the evidence logbook for the date in question, and she identified the entry that she made um, and forged. Dukin initialed uh, the the entries on the sheet she had falsified. Uh, Dukin was asked about her tune reports. A tune report shows that the mass spec is functioning correctly. Dukin was asked if she ever forged uh, Nicole Medina's in initials on any of those reports. Initially, she denied falsifying any tune reports and or assigning Nicole Medina's initials on them. Dukin was then shown a falsified forged <laughs> tune report from June of 20, June 10th of 2011. And she stated, I screwed up. It's my fault. I was not paying attention. When asked to explain, Dukin then admitted to forging the initials deliberately. <laughs> when asked why she did this, Dukin stated, there was no one available. No one has the time. I wanted to get the work done. Dukin initialed the sheet we showed to memorialize bubble. They're making just like, well, let me just pause there. Yeah. You can't get the work done unless you tune and calibrate the machine, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> or unless you don't use the machine at all, you know? Dukin was also asked about falsifying a, a quality control Q GCMS daily in injector report. This procedure is to analyze a known amount of samples for, of drugs to determine if the GCMS is in proper working condition. A report is generated with the results and evaluated and signed off by a chemist as accepting the results. Initially, Dukin stated that she would not do the, that because there was no backup for those reports. When she was shown a report from May 12th of 2011, she stated, I got the work done, but not properly. I didn't follow <laughs> the procedures, and that was wrong. Dukin admitted that the data she recorded on the report of March of May 12, 2011 was false and did not uh, coincide with the data recorded from the instrument. Dukin stated that at some point, Betsy O'Brien asked her to help out in the evidence office. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Dukin, <laughs> Betsy, again, lying to investigators, no big deal. As long as you, as long as you're involved in a massive state cover-up, <laughs> Dukin was then given access to the evidence database. Oh my God, she routinely looked up data for assistant attorney, uh, district attorneys who would call her directly, bypassing the proper protocol of going through the evidence office. She stated, "So who gives a shit about the June breach? Like they're asking for her this stuff all the time, and she's working in the evidence office." She stated that this was her fault and she should have directed the ADAs to the office. It's of course not the uh, ADA's fault. <laughs> like uh, when Dukin was removed from the lab duties followed the June 20 uh, was removed from lab duties following the June 2011 incident uh, with the sample. She stated directing the ADAs to follow the proper procedure by sending a form to the evidence office. Oh, by the way, she did this to Papa Christos at the end of June, and Papa Christos asked, quote, are you mad at me? <laughs> <laughs> Everything okay? You're not rigging my evidence for me. I incident with the San... Uh, okay. So uh, she said that they, they just wanted to get their cases analyzed or get the information from the analysis. Dukin advised that after being removed from the lab, she disobeyed orders and on occasion still looked up data. She, st she stated her doing that was, quote, wrong. 
<laughs> what did you say about the Turks? What, what was that, Ilias? Oh, that was a oh, Salt Bay thing. Going um, back to Salt Bay, that yeah. That, that, um... <laughs> and initially, Dukin denied doing anything improper in regards to her analyzing drug samples. And initially, she claimed that she performed a cocaine crystal test on every cocaine sample. And then Dukin stated that she would never falsify because it's someone's life on the line. See? Which is relevant to the salt bay thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no crystals? Oh, I, well, GCMS said it might be cocaine. All right. Sprinkle yeah. some crystals on there. They were all set. It's like holding <laughs> it up here. and Oh, my God. <laughs> She was asked about dry labbing and if she ever had done that. Duke had asked us what we thought dry labbing was. We advised, <laughs> what do you, what is dry labbing? You tell me. We advised that it was when a chemist looks at a sample and identifies it by sight um, of, instead of doing the proper test. The chemist then states that they did all the work they were required to do, but really they dry labbed. Uh, Dukin then said she didn't think she had dry labbed. <laughs> right. That was after she said, oh, dry labbing. <laughs> I thought you said something else. Oh, dry lab. Oh, okay. Um, uh, she was then confronted with the results of a recent BPD te- retest. This was a retest on a positive analysis for cocaine, which Dukin was the chemist on, that had come back as negative on a recent retest. We also explained to her that we had received information that there were other anomalies reported during the investigation, which indicated that she was not doing anything properly. Also, her number of samples analyzed were so high that she couldn't have performed all the required tests. She became sad, and a slight tear came to her eye, and she said, I screwed up big time. I messed up. I messed up bad. It's my fault. I don't want the lab to get into trouble. Duke and Ned admitted to dry laughing. <laughs> <laughs> how many do, how many years does she say she did it for by the way uh, she did it. yeah they they don't they don't get into that you can then explain that, that she one. would oh go ahead what were you saying they forgot to ask that question yeah yeah that did, that never came up she just dry labbed that was it after she said i don't think i did <laughs> Uh, Duke then explained that she would routinely secure a large amount of samples from evidence. She would then group them on her bench uh, by the same suspect, suspected drug. Duke would lay out a number of samples from various cases. She would separate suspect cocaine in one area, suspect heroin in another area, and so on. She would also set aside unknowns. Duke would, according to her testimony, they were all unknowns. Duke would identify uh, the drug by the type of suspected drug that was checked off the control card. She then went on to explain that she would lay out uh, about 25 samples of what she felt were the same type of drug. This is real chemistry here. Duke would then actually test approximately five samples properly by her bench. She would then prepare all of her cocaine, heroines, and other vials for mass spec for all the samples. The samples that she did not properly test, she would label as the drug she suspected it of being. That was her process. Now, she is the, the second most productive chemist in the history of the lab. Like, And she also was trained in part by the first most productive chemist in the history of the lab. And I'm just wondering, it's not an unfair inference to 
to say that she probably learned it from Farrakh. Right. 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 And just to, to make the point super clear, because uh, first of all, this is actually closer to the truth than probably anything else that anyone has said. Right. Because I do believe there was this sort of segregation of samples taking place. Uh, but if she had 25, what she thought were cocaine, because somebody said they were cocaine, right? So this is reversing the presumption of innocence here. Um, she would test only five of them. And not even from the same person's case. It's not right. like 25 so bags from a case. It's 25 different cases. Right. So 20 people are going to be railroaded uh, because she te- she was satisfied with the other five people. Um, so A, that makes no sense. But B, why was she even bothering with those five? And is the answer because um, then she could look like she's doing something at her desk? Yeah. Is that what this was like about? And, um, so this was really just a smokescreen. Yeah. Um, and that's what Peter Pirro said uh, that, that I read earlier in the episode where, where he said that he thought her GSCMS work was basically a screening method. Well, the screening method, I think, is something different, but um, because you, again, you could run the GCMS to uh, uh, to identify the substance, or you could uh, um, uh, uh, there was a different way that you're using it to screen. Right? Oh, okay, and, I see. I and see. I think there's some that's that's getting into uh, chemistry and statistics, which I'm not equipped to discuss either, but. Um, but at least it's a bench testing. Okay, this is like anyone can understand this. You take a little dropper, you drop some things, does it change color? And you stick something on a slide, you do something, you look in the microscope, do you see crystals, right? Anybody could get that part. Um, she's not doing it for the majority of the of the samples. So that's dry the vast majority. Vast yeah. majority. So that's dry labbing. But now my question is, well, if you're not doing it for the vast majority, why are you doing it for any? Um and how do we even know that you're actually doing it? You know, um, well, and I mean, what, are, what are you doing? Are you copying the result? You know, the little plus marks. Oh, you know, um, cobalt something test. You know, uh, two little plus symbols, and then you take your. You, I, I picture having her stack of powder sheets, so she's like plus plus. plus flip over well, plus, it plus, really plus. tends to explain why all of her powder sheets are blank. Right? She's just not doing the test for those twenty samples. Right? right, so that's why when they're going back and reviewing her cases uh, in response to discovery requests after she's benched, they're, they're just blank. Right, she, she's just not doing it. But there, there's isn't there testimony that at times there was confusion if the results were at, uh, at odds, you know, the GCMS results. So I guess if if you were the secondary chemist and you you just get negative. I guess you assume there's variance, because so, but you don't know. So the secondary chemist doesn't get the powder sheet. That stays with the primary chemist. What the secondary chemist gets is this little control card, which is an index card, and it says suspected cocaine or whatever. And so they generate all their tests and all their paperwork, and if they're incongruent, then it gets sent back. So the GCMS chemist is not going to know if the primary chemist never filled out uh, the, the the powder sheet and never did their work in the first place, right? So, so one question, one question I have, which no one has answered, and maybe you know the answer, but what happens if you get a, a sample from, let's say, BPD, uh, and it's suspected for cocaine, and maybe the control card says that, and you do your 
spot tests and you look under your microscope and it ain't cocaine. Or it's not, I don't know what the right phrase would be. It's not consistent with cocaine. It's not indicative of cocaine. What happens at that point? Is that the well, end? Is that show's over? Well, I think they're supposed to run through the whole rest of the chemical reagent tests. So there are certain ones that um, show positive for cocaine. There are certain ones that, you know, produce a certain color for uh, an opioid or opiate. So I think if they got a powder sample and they thought it was one thing, it doesn't come up as that. They would just go down through the checklist of the other types of drugs that might be in correspondence or in connection with the uh, chemical reagent tests. And, uh, you know, if, if you're just sending them off to the GCMS machines without doing any of that, you can come up with incongruent results. Right. right. But it just seems like the whole testimony about return to chemists um, doesn't make sense when you consider that the vast majority of these weren't even tested. And so what does that even mean to return to chemists? Because, um, you know, you're, 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 you're not really, you're not really looking at what was done before, uh, possibly because nothing was done before. So why is that any different than just saying the result Uh, was negative? So I was confusing to me. I mean, the disconnect is that Dukin would only test five and maybe fill out paperwork for five, the other 20, she would just write cocaine on the control card. There would be no actual record of what she was doing. So that's where they would see the difference. Okay. So um, still kind of interesting if, if it, because, uh, you, know, no, you know, there's talk about all kinds of paper audits of what she was doing. But if, if there was any semblance of an audit, uh, and she's not doing powder sheets for the vast majority of samples that should have been picked up. Uh, and so this idea that her paperwork was all in order uh, seems like it's not. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if Piero went over two years worth of her documents, he had to have found that. Yeah. Right. Like it, it's impossible that he didn't. It's, it's impossible. impossible that he didn't. And, and I'll just impossible. say for the record that I don't actually believe, I think uh, dry labbing is a little bit of a red herring. Because again, I don't think dry labbing turns negatives into positives. Um, and so open vials that can be cross-contaminated could. Um, intentional spiking and doctoring could. Um, but um, dry labbing by itself probably does not. No. In the case of my client, there was a powder sheet. So he would be this interesting guy where he's in the minority of uh, uh, samples that she actually did the powder test, supposedly. Um, and then she did uh, a standalone GC test, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, and maybe because she grouped his sample as an un, one of the unknowns. Well, that's what we'll needed- get into right now, actually. Yeah. So do we, uh, look, I'm, I'm willing to bet that she filled out the powder sheet after it got sent back to her, right? Like, bet you $100, that's what happened. Oh, that's a good point. Meaning, well, could you look at the, at the, uh, at the, I mean, there's no timestamp on it. It's not electronic. It's not like they're putting it into a computer or taking a picture. So, you know, if you just send the control card over to the GCMS room and it says cocaine on it and they say there's none in here, redo the tests or, or like, let's see your results. She could just fill out the powder sheet, you know, at that point in time in order to cover her tracks. Right. I mean, there is a line for a date, but to, that's a fair point that who's, who's going to believe that date? 
Um, so here we go for the unknowns. So Dukin stated that she properly tested all of the unknowns because she had no idea what they were. She would then submit all the samples to MassSpec for confirmatory analysis. On occasion, the samples would have to be returned to the MassSpec because the, the drug was different from what she said it was. Uh, she would initially try to clean the sample up. So this is the process, Ilias. This is what we're talking about. By making a more concentrated sample or using more of the sample. If that did not work, she would... So what is work? Like, what, what's she getting at? If that did not work, she would intentionally contaminate the sample by preparing a vial using a known drug from a completed test stored at her bench. She stated that she only contaminated samples a few times. I mean, what's, what's the scariest thing? So she's talking about contaminating samples as a primary chemist, and the OIG report says that they found no evidence that she was contaminating other people's results when she was a GCMS chemist. But in previous episodes, we talked about this email where the OIG's experts said, this looks like a case where the GCMS chemist purposely helped the sample along, quote unquote, in order to turn it from negative to positive. And she's the GCMS chemist. And the case is from 2004, right? Right when she started working. Exactly. Right. And, and, and so that doesn't cover OIG. only a few times. That that's right. a process. And she's been doing it the whole time she was there, and not just in the way that she's describing, uh, also in other people's cases. But right. why right. would she do it and where did she learn to do that? Like, you know, like that's that's really I mean, it, it was this just her idea, or was this a process to quote, like you said, help a sample along? Because, you know, a, a DA is asking for a conviction or whatever, you know, like th these, these are questions that will always be unanswered. But it, to me, that's the most important part of this. Right. Well, I mean, let's, let's also go back to uh, the OIG investigation of the samples that, uh, that, were, that were falsely certified to be a, a, a drug when they were not. Uh, I mean, Dukin was not involved in every single one of those samples. In fact, right. she wasn't involved in. And, and I can think of at least one where she was involved as a secondary, not the primary. So um, either she's running around that lab spiking a lot of samples, wearing lots of different hats, or other people were also involved in this process. Um, and it would have been nice if somebody could have conducted an investigation to figure out which it was. Well, certainly when the OIG found out that other people were doing things like this, and then the SJC relied on their earlier report saying that Annie Dukin was only doing this and only with respect to her own samples as a primary chemist. You would have hoped that the inspector general would have, uh, you know, corrected the opinion and sent a letter to the SJC saying we have clear evidence that A, she was contaminating other people's samples and B, other people were doing this. Mm. So Dukin did not want samples sent back from mass spec to remain improperly typed as it would show that she had not uh, completed the required preliminary tests on all the samples she sent to the mass spec. Dukin explained that she did not, she did what she did in order to get more work done. Prior to Dukin being removed from the testing lab in June of 2011, she dry labbed for two or three years 
that's what I was saying earlier. So like, we know that she was doing it since she started because her numbers are so high. Yeah. There's no way she couldn't have been. And, and I think that that was a lab practice. She didn't learn that on her own. She was, she has no knowledge of anyone else in the lab using improper testing methods. She advised that she was not tipping on, she was not tipped by anyone in the lab, uh, in regards to the June 2011 samples being improperly obtained, not not entered, and the forgery in the log notebook. Dukin also advised that no one at the lab knew of her dry labbing or intentional contamination of samples. She never confided in anyone about what she was doing. She also stated that she has... Uh, no knowledge of anyone else in the lab not performing proper analysis. Um, Can I just pause for a yeah, second? So at, yeah. least, at least the logbook thing is untrue because but the fact pattern was they figured out the samples were taken out inappropriately in violation of protocol. They looked at the logbook, the appropriate entries and signatures were not there, right? And then uh, they wait a day uh, and then somehow uh, the entries are there, right? Which Duke and forged before they confront her. And they're like, well, this wasn't here before. Like, how does that, why would she know to do that if she wasn't tipped off by someone that they were looking at her and this was an issue? It makes no sense. It makes, I mean, it, it's, this is all just a massive cover up. As we right. all know, like they, they will never know. I don't think they were ever honest as to whether or not the investigators didn't want them to be honest or or what. I don't think we'll ever know. But right. um, it, it, it's just bizarre. And two to three years, an interesting statement by her, sort of ties it pretty close to Melendez Diaz. And, and the other thing that happened after Melendez Diaz was that uh, Nassif uh, uh, began uh, exploring ways to enhance productivity in the lab. And one suggestion was to move to a one chemist system. Now I'd like to understand how dry labbing uh, interfaces with the one chemist system, because that seems to suggest that the, the primary chemist and the secondary chemist are the same person. So the dry labber would be the, the reviewing chemist. Uh, and now as an investigator, I'd be very concerned that the one chemist system was actually a code word for dry labbing. Right. Well, I mean, with respect to the, the, the powder sheet part and just go set straight to the secondary part. And if you don't like the result the first time, just tinker until you get it right. I mean, that's what's so concerning about Farrick's statistics from 2003 and 2004, because she was engaged in that behavior way more than anyone else in the lab and in the history of the lab doing both sets of tests at once, right? So if it doesn't come out as whatever you thought it was initially when you were just looking at it and not doing any chemical analysis, you can just put whatever you want. Well, on that's the, the point. Amherst was always the one chemist system, right? No, but I'm saying when she was working back at Hinton, she was engaged in that specific behavior from 2003 and 2004 way more than any of the other chemists in the history of the lab. No, right. But I'm just trying to connect these pieces, right? So you're a state investigator and you know she did that in Amher, in Hinton. 
She goes to Amherst, which apparently there's no dispute was a one chemist uh, uh, utopia. And, and then you have Annie Dukin, who somehow either on her own or maybe uh, with authority from above is, is doing her own uh, sort of bypassing of the preliminary testing. Wouldn't someone want to connect those dots and say, was, all, was the entire uh, state system uh, basically jettisoning the preliminary results? I mean, was, did, did anyone confirm that other people were actually doing appropriate preliminary testing? I mean, that would be a way to churn out convictions if you're not doing half of the tests. Right. Right. So, okay. So that interview took place on August 28th of 2012. On, on Thursday, August 30th of 2012, the guy who did the interview, the police officer, um, got a call from Annie Dukin. The purpose of the call was a well, or called Annie Dukin, and it was a well-being check. And as a notification that there could possibly be a press conference involving the investigation. Um, and then the officer also wanted to advise Dukin that she had some criminal exposure criminal exposure and that she should get an attorney, which I'm sure they, they tell like all the crack dealers on the street, dude, you have some criminal exposure here. You should get some, you should get an attorney pronto. Uh, I'm just going to do a well-being check on you. Can you imagine them them doing that for like, like 99% of the people that they arrest, right? (laughs) Like who do they also, say that? Well, oh, oh, get a lawyer. You have exposure. Right. Get a lawyer. Also, yeah. well-being checks sort of remind me of uh, you know when the um, the, the mafia um, people come to a restaurant and um, uh, and say, you know, like, "Shame if this this place burned down." Uh, <laughs> we're just doing a well-being check. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so she didn't answer the phone. Uh, he left a message. Uh, and included his own uh, cell number to call back. And and then he also knew through the other interviews that Dukin utilized text messaging. <laughs> so he texted her. And at approximately 1,100 hours, um, Michael, the, the person who wrote this, Michael Cooney, and uh, Tom Mahone uh, it went to Dukin's address to conduct a well-being check. So this is another well-being check. Right. This is and, the one where they show up with their sidearms. Yeah. <laughs> and then at uh, 12, uh, there was no answer at the door. And subsequently, Dukin called on her cell phone. and uh, Or he again called on Dukin's cell phone and she answered. And he identified himself as an officer and Dukin said hi. And then... Uh, and then she said that she read her task, the, the text, they went back and forth. Um, he asked her how she was doing and uh, went again, said that she could have some criminal exposure, et cetera, and that there was going to be a press conference later in the afternoon and that she and her family should be aware of it. Dear God, did they do this for Aaron Hernandez? <laughs> I mean, like what, what else is crazy is they mentioned the interview. We learned from you know, other people that there might be incriminating evidence and text messages on her phone and Hevis or however you pronounce her name says, yeah, Dukin told me to delete all my text messages. What's interesting is 
the defense bar never got those text messages and it's unclear if the mass state police ever tried to retrieve them. Right. So like if you're in an investigation and you've got, you know, one potential co-defendant or suspect saying like the lead suspect told me to delete all of my messages. It's not like they're, I've never seen a case where that happens and the police were like, all right, we're not going to look at your phone. <laughs> you know, like we're not going to try to gather that as evidence, you know? They didn't say what the end of that was. They didn't say if she actually did delete her texts. Right. Did she delete any of her stuff? Like, what were the texts? Like, yeah, what were the texts? Like, why did she do that? Like, they, they didn't ask her why she thought, well, it, it just, it, it makes no sense. It's, Dude, it's crazy. They just bring up crazy stuff and then never follow through in it. it it's they keep doing it. And then so um, he again said, OK, so they uh, told Dukin that they would not give her name out to the press, but that she should be prepared uh, as reporters have a way of learning the information. Oh, my. Yeah. She, she, right. then, she then told me that. Uh, the agreement she had with DPH was she, when she resigned was that her name would not be given out. I told her that we would not give her name and neither would the DPH, but she should be aware that reporters might come uh, around her house. So say, how, do have, how do you have an agreement with the Department of Public Health to not provide a rogue chemist's name to defendants? Right. 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 And right. by the way, just consider that the state police is one of many um, uh, law enforcement organizations that has zero qualms putting the names of people they arrest out there. Uh, and thanks to Facebook, they actually um, many departments around the country actually have mocking uh, social media posts of the people they arrest, referring to them as stupid and look at what, at what, what how dumb this person was, uh, et cetera. Uh, and 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 look at the the pain and and they they justify it that this is um, the public has a right to know right uh, pu- you know public safety and yet they're 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 taking great pains not to reveal her name uh, as they do umpteen well being checks on her um, so it sort of suggests that there are maybe two channels of of criminal justice uh, one that I knew about and one that I didn't know about um, that where that, uh, that looks very different. Look at what they, I always, I mean, whatever anyone thinks about Aaron Hernandez, when he was like, after he was charged or they laid out their entire case for, for everything that he did to the public in a huge press conference. Like not only did they give his name, they, they did everything before he ever went to trial. Like they do that. All that is routine, especially for big cases, because they're I mean, what I think they're trying to do is poison the the jury pool and give all the information to everyone out there. So you can't help but hear what Aaron Hernandez did before. Oh, his his home security footage was was on the local news. I mean, yeah. So I advised uh, that Duke, it just it just depends on who you are, I guess. And then so the cop advised that Dukin uh, to Dukin that she should get an attorney and uh, then consult with the attorney. (laughs) She said she didn't know any attorneys and that she didn't have any money. I advised her that some attorneys will meet with her for a free initial consultation. She said she understood. I I don't know how many thousands of police reports I've read, but that's never how it goes. Right. It's just like I I advised the defendant or the suspect of his Miranda rights and uh, 
it, it doesn't also say you should get an attorney. Here's how you can get one for free, right? Yeah. Here's what you should do to get an attorney. Uh, she said she understood and would get back to me. Oh my God, this is ridiculous. I told her that if she got a lawyer to give the lawyer my number and I would talk to the attorney. What? Well, that's, that's actually okay. Like if you are represented by someone, they shouldn't be contacting the person directly. But uh, again, I've never seen a case in an incident report where it says, hey, uh, not only these are your rights, but go out and get an attorney right now. Like just do it, right? You know, you can feel the <laughs> little push there to try and get her to do that so that she clams up. I told her to talk to her husband and he might be able to get to help with money for an, a lawyer. She told me that they were in the process of a long divorce. <laughs> I shouldn't be reading that. But anyways, she, she said that she didn't want to involve her, her family. She said she had told her husband about the samples not being logged, but had not told him anything about what had happened. At approximately 1528, I received a call from Annie Dukin's cell phone. I missed the call. I called back. Dukin answered, and I was advised that she was not at her home, or Dukin's husband answered and uh, said that she wasn't there, but that um, she had been told that there was news and the, that the news media was at her house. She asked why the news media was digging so hard. I told her that the lab had been closed and there had been a press conference. It was a news story. I then told her that there was information that the media did not know yet about her, including, including the contamination of samples and her turning negative samples into positive. I told her the media does not know the details and will encourage them to try to get them. I, I, I told her we, the investigators, didn't even know what happened. Uh, what cases this happened to? Duke replied that she knows this is a problem. She, <laughs> she said uh, that she told us uh, that she would not be able to tell what happened, uh, which cases that she contaminated. She also thanked me for my honesty and being upfront with her about the press and said that she trusts me. I told her that she did not have to talk to the press if there was a problem at her house to call the local police department. I asked her about a lawyer and asked her, um, and she, I asked her about a lawyer and she asked what kind of lawyer I needed. I told her she would talk to a criminal lawyer. She, did you get a call on this, Chris? I did. What I would do want to say is sometimes in police reports where they're trying to extract a confession, they're careful, uh, careful in the report about saying what they did in order to advise the suspect of his or her rights so that later on, if there's some motion to suppress on an issue of voluntariness or whether or not Miranda warnings were given, there's like a contemporaneous record that it did incur. That's not what this is, no, right? This is like, get a lawyer, get this kind of lawyer, call one right now. But, but first, get me some good admissions. <laughs> and by the way his his little statement there of oh the press doesn't know about you turning negative samples into positive and yeah, by the way yeah. we're not going to tell them that right i mean like that's that's the thing i'm talking about so like that isn't in there in order for them to use it at a motion to suppress hearing against duke and later right mm -hmm. like telling them the press doesn't know what you've told us has no bearing upon the case right 
It's unbelievable. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is, um, uh, I, I don't know how much of this is attributable to um, uh, Lieutenant, uh, at the time, I think, uh, Cooney. Um, no. But if you Google him, uh, you come up with a case in, uh, around the same time involving, there was a, 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 a an alleged scheme involving um, fraudulent EMT um, billing um, by a, a, a town uh, police department. And he was the investigator there, and he's alleged to have said to the target of the investigation not to, quote, worry about it because he didn't see much liability there for um, committing any kind of fraud. So I, I, I sort of wonder, you know, what this guy's, um, I'll use French phrase, raison d'etre is, uh, you know, is he going around investigating crimes or is he there to sort of try to keep a lid on things? Mr. Coverup. <laughs> but so, um, and then... Uh, I did tell her that based on the investigation to this point, she has some criminal exposure again. She asked me what she, what she would be charged with if she was charged. Again, I told her those decisions are not mine and that um, I, I would not give her an answer. I again told her she should get a lawyer. Oh, wait a minute, excuse me. That was at the end of this. So at approximately 1645, Dukin called her, her, this guy's cell phone again. He answered and Dukin was crying not hard, more of a whimper. She was despondent and looking for advice. She said she managed to get home uh, when the press left the front of her house, but uh, that they were back again. She said she talked to a lawyer and he would not handle her case if she wasn't charged. Uh, she asked if she was being criminally charged, blah, 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 blah. And that's where it picked up. And he said to get a lawyer again. Dukin began crying and sounded despondent. She, she said she never meant to hurt anybody. I told her I knew that and that she had made a mistake, but that didn't make her a bad person. Oh, my God. I asked her if she had... Uh, family in the area that she could be with. She said she was an only child and her parents were elsewhere and that the only family was a brother and sister-in-law. Dukin continued to cry. I asked her if she was all right and if she ever thought bad, bad thoughts. Uh, she said that uh, the harm that she was causing people would go through her mind every now and then. And when she said this, she was crying and I wasn't sure if she was going to harm herself. I asked her to re to repeat it. And she again mentioned the harm done to other people. This is again, this is the only time we've now, this is like now hour four of reading all of these materials for investigation. This is the okay. only time anyone who worked at any of these labs ever re expressed any kind of regret for what had gone on in these labs. And, and, and how it impacted other people's lives. Um, I provided Dukin with a telephone number uh, for CPCS in Dedham. I advised her that she should call that number right away and they could assist her in finding counsel. Dukin advised that she had written down the number and that she would call it. And that was it. That's about it for Annie Dukin. I've, I've never seen a police report where the officer says, I advise the, the suspect to call the public defender's office so that they could get representation. Like that has never happened in the history of the state. Right. I've, I've never seen that in the thousands of thousands of police reports that I've read. I've never seen that ever. Basically begging her to get, I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? Please talk to a lawyer. 
Um, so that's the end of the that's the end of the police report. However, there is a coda. In that coda, everyone was interviewed around August or September of 2012, right? Everyone except on October 3rd of 2012, this was not in the police report. George Papakristos was interviewed. He's the only ADA that was interviewed. And he was an ADA um, employed at the Norfolk County DA's office. He started the ADA's office in 2004 as a student intern. He was hired full-time in 2005. He uh, worked in Quincy, Stoughton, Dedham, and Brook uh, and Brookline District Courts. He returned to Dedham for a second stint in approximately 2006. He began supervising at, at Dedham District Court and also started to prosecute motor vehicle cases out of Superior Court. He was assigned uh, to, to Superior Court full-time in 2007. In Superior Court, he was assigned to general crimes which he, which he said were major felonies such as, you know, assault and battery, homicide, assault with intent to murder, uh, and drug cases. Uh, Papa Christos stated that he dealt primarily with the DPH lab on drug-related prosecutions, as most of his cases were from local police departments. He did have some state police cases, but they were prior to Melendez-Diaz, and all he needed at the time were drug certificates. Uh, one of the first people he met from the DPH lab was Annie Dukin, and that was around 2007 or 2008. Papa Christos believed that it was pre-Melendez-Diaz, and he met her at the lab doing, during working hours. They met on a drug case that Papa Christos was prosecuting out of Quincy, and uh, it was a cocaine trafficking case, and Papa Christos met with Dukin, who was the chemist on the case. The analysis on the cocaine was a representative sampling analysis. Papa Christos was new to the type of analysis, so he met with the chemist to get an understanding of uh, what that was. He did not have a clear understanding at the time as to what a representative analysis was or the math involved. They met so Papa Christos could uh, prep chemist Dukin in his case for possible testimony. Dukin also sent Papa Christos a couple of sample cases where representative sampling was done in the admissibility of some. Oh, wow. Why is a chemist doing that? Dukin did not testify at the trial and the case ultimately pled out. After the completion of the case, Papa Christos sent a letter complimenting Dukin's work to Charles Salemi and Linda Hahn at the lab. Prior to sending the letter, Papa Christos um, asked Dukin who uh, he should send the letter to. Dukin advised him that her boss was Charles Salemi, but he wouldn't care, so he should send the letter to Linda Hahn. Papa Christos would send letters of um, recognition and appreciation on a regular basis, thinking people thanking people for their hard work and dedication on cases that he prosecuted. This included witnesses and police officers. When, Pop when Papa Christos was a supervising attorney in Dedham District Court around 2006 or 2007. He had an office issue a data phone. Due to the budget cuts, everyone except top management turned in their office issued data phone. This was approximately 2007. Papa Christos then used his personal data phone, an old BlackBerry, as a way to um, receive emails from work. He, he tried several times to get his office email put on the phone, but was told it could not be done. His personal email account was through Hotmail. 
he would use Hotmail account when uh, he wasn't at his computer on nights and weekends. Papa Christo said that he is a very hard worker and uh, would work numerous nights and weekends with no compensation. Okay. Uh, Papa Christos would use his Hotmail account to contact defense attorneys, police officers, and people at the lab, including Annie Dukin. Papa Christos told a lot of people that if they uh, needed to get a hold of him to email his Hotmail. So he, he had, apparently they're looking into this because he had a lot of emails with Dukin from his personal email account. Papa Christos stated that he received an um, office-issued data phone towards the end of 2011 and that there were still a few people he still had on his Hotmail account saved to contact him. And then he said that other than um, one case lawyer, he never had occasion to meet with Annie Dukin um, and he was never subpoenaed on any uh, chemist, including Dukin, for a drug case. So... Um, the, but he also admitted, or he also had said it's, it's not there, but in another part of that interview, he said that, um, he had an affair with a witness or a potential witness prior to this in that, you know, he, he knew Dukin, uh, Dukin, he got in trouble or he had a a speaking to from his supervisor. He had to report that Dukin's husband contacted him, um, and, and told him to stay away from his wife. And that so that's a public record somewhere, or yeah, I have that, I have that, and I have. Wait, I'm sorry, what was the what was the reference to an affair? Who had an affair with a witness? Uh, Papa Christos had said that he had slept with another member of, um, uh, but that could have potentially been a witness. She she worked somewhere else, but uh, he he had never. Uh, he would never knowingly sleep with someone who was involved in one of his cases that he was answering a question from them. I see. So like a couple of, so like talking with, you raised a few different issues. One, talking with an expert, you know, if you don't understand the math or something, having them send, you know, an earlier case or, you know, earlier record that they worked on for you to try and understand it better, supposing it's redacted, that's fine. Uh, also a lot of public, uh, you know, people working for the government do work on weekends, right? Like we sort of scoffed at that a little bit, but I know a lot of prosecutors and and defense attorneys who do that. What really bothered me aside from this last affair thing that you brought up was, uh, you know, sending a letter to Linda Hahn, uh, regarding, um, you know, how good Dukin was, as a witness, I've never heard anything like that before. Right. So yeah. like, that wasn't her boss. That wasn't her boss's boss. That was the head of the whole building. Right. So uh, that strikes me as entirely peculiar. Right. And then when you look at the emails between those two, I'm sorry, like it, it, it's ridiculous to think that there wasn't anything going on. It's ridiculous to think that. Here, here's the rest of the... Hold on, I just Googled the rest of the interview. Uh, here's the Hotmail. Um, okay, so Papa Christos... Uh, when Papa Christos needed a discovery package, he would email a chemist on the cert directly. He recalled emailing Nicole Medina, Michael Lawler, and Dukin for discovery packets. He advised that there was... Weren't they supposed to go to the Evans office? 
He advised that there was not a lot of defense attorneys looking for discovery packets, so he didn't have to do that very often. Papa Cristo said that the first time he was made aware that he was uh, to call the evidence office at the lab and not the individual chemist was approximately May or June of 2012. That's not true. It was 2011 when Dukin said that right after the June breach, but he may just have got his date script mixed up. Uh, Michael Lawler from the lab had contacted him, advising him that any further requests should go through the evidence office. Dukin had told him that a year prior. And then Papa Chris was advised that certs would normally come from the police. He is not sure if he ever asked the lab for a cert. Um, Papa Christos said that he never had a case that he needed to call the lab to get an uh, analyst or an analyzation done in a rush. If someone at the office needed a cert for a grand jury and needed a rush on it, they would go to the ADAs that uh, was authorized to send such a request. A fax would be sent to Shirley at the lab with the request. Papa Christos never met Annie Dukin outside of work. The only time he met her was at the lab that one time prepping for the case. He advised that he and Dukin had gotten friendly in a work-related sort of way. He felt she was a hard worker and a good person who was always looking to help out in a work-related matters. There were times when the two of them would vent about work, she to him and he to her. Papa Christos felt that Dukin was under a lot of pressure and she was looking to get some, some things off of her mind. Dukin then stayed, uh, then started to share personal information with him. He is not sure if, if it was over the phone or email, but Dukin contacted him and advised that she was having problems with her husband. Uh, Papa Christos advised uh, that around the time that Dukin had made disclosure about her husband and having problems, he got a series of text messages on his work cell phone. Papa Christos paraphrases the text message as, this is Annie's husband. Do not believe her. She's a liar. She's always lying. She's looking for sympathy and attention. Uh, Papa Christos' name was not mentioned in the text, and he believes they might have been sent to more than one person. The text did not say anything about fooling around with his wife or having an affair. Papa Christos advised that texts were about Duke and looking for sympathy and currying favor. Those texts were only the only ones he received. He separated himself in contact from Duke and after the text messages. That is completely untrue. That is untrue. Literally the next day after he got those, he was still uh, talk, like talking in a very playful manner with her. Dukin had, had sent Papa Christos a greeting card. It was a friendly card and it had a dog on it. <laughs> it, was, it said something about keep your head up and there are people who care about what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Papa Christos did not think a lot about uh, the greeting card and then he had a phone conversation with Dukin. He spoke to Dukin over the phone for discovery packets. After the call, Papa Christos received an email from Dukin that said, thanks for making me smile. Papa Christos felt that it was getting a little weird. And Papa Christos was asked about an email he sent to Dukin on March, uh, March 25th of 2010. He advised that he sent the email to clarify uh, to Dukin uh, personally that their relationship was a work-friendly relationship, but work only. Uh, Papa Christos did not want any further personal disclosures from Dukin or getting in the middle of a marital problem. Do we, do we have that email? Yeah, I have that email. I can read it out. Um, 
that he had nothing to do with. He advised that they were working professionals. Papa Christos advised he contacted Dukin by email to establish a record. Dukin responded uh, by email on the 26th of March, 2010. Papa Christos was not shown the email, but he recalls Dukin feeling terrible. Dukin also left a voicemail on his work line saying how sorry she was. She said that she would talk to Papa Christos' boss and tell him that nothing happened and that Dukin just felt she could talk to him. She didn't mean to get him in the middle of anything. On February 1st, 2012, the DA's office was notified by letter that the DPH lab, there was something wrong with the chemist. On February 21st, 2012, the DA's office learned through the DPH that Dukin had breached protocol of samples. Um, Dukin never, so that's February 1st or February 21st of 2012. My God. Dukin never disclosed to Papa Christos that she had, was in any kind of trouble. She did not advise him before the DA's office was notified or the office was notified. After problems with Dukin, Papa Christos advised that he, uh, that he asked a colleague about having a relationship with a person that is an expert witness. That person did not work at the lab and she was a member of the state police. He, he did not have a case with her, and he realized that if he did, he would be conflicted out of the case. He advised that he would not be able to prosecute a case if he was having a relationship with a witness. Dot, dot, dot. Papa Christos was asked about drug weights and results. He advised he never asked Dukin to adjust drug weights or results on a drug sample. I know why he's being asked that. After he got that email um, from the husband, and after he, you know, said, made Duke and send him an email saying that they were just friends, he asked, he told her exactly the, the weight that a marijuana case needed to be to get a drug trafficking conviction. And she came back, ironically, two pounds over what he needed. Yeah. Papa Christos did not know until Dukin had emailed him that she used her personal email. He became aware after she answered some of the emails from her personal uh, address, email address. He does not believe that uh, he has ever emailed her first uh, for personal her he ever emailed her personal email knowingly. He believes that he would reply only. Um, Papa Christos does not believe that Dukin asks to see him outside of work and he knows that he did not ask her to see to see her outside of work and that's it so i mean like there's you know now all that we know about the mass state police i would sort of want to know a little bit more about this uh right this whatever the relationship was with someone in the, the state police, right. That you just referenced. Um, yes. Is there anything out there that we know of at all regarding that? Or it's just this one reference in this one interview. Just the one reference in the one interview. I've never heard anything outside of that. So you want to see if he was telling the truth about whether or not this person worked on any cases, uh, that he was the prosecutor for, right? Right. So here is the Thursday, March 25th, 2020, uh, 10 email. Annie, I know 
uh, we have spoken. It says he have spoken like there's typos all over. I know we have spoken on the phone in regards to this email since it is in writing. And for whatever reason, it was sent to me. I need to respond in order to clarify the situation. Our contact has been and will be strictly professional. It is necessary for a successful prosecution of these drug cases. I have never initiated contact in a personal nature, nor do I intend to. I know you have stated in voicemail as well as a cellular phone conversation on 325.10 that this email was sent in regards to seeing whether someone is hacking into your email system. That, oh my God. So like it, it, it doesn't seem like uh, he's writing this in anticipation of litigation at all, right? No, it's not no, 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 no. <laughs> this is just a personal convo between two besties. And for whatever reason, it was sent to me. I do not know anything about your family situation, nor is it something that is discussed in our conversations. I need you to clarify this by responding to this email, because as it stands, the email that was sent to me for what, from whoever leaves an impression or indicates that I have attempted to have or have something more than a strictly professional working relationship. I am not, nor do I know why I was sent this email or whether I am in the middle of possible marital discourse, but I do not want to be. I am very committed to my job and have been since day one. I, and I do not get involved personally with a potential witness or actual witness. Except I mean, for what I do. Except for the state police woman. Anyways, I need you to respond in writing confirming that I have what I have stated and what you have stated in the voicemail as well as cellular conversations that the statement within the email are accurate and have no truth or bearing in my knowledge or involvement in your personal life. I, I thought this important to send to you after I was able to view the email. Sincerely, George Papa Christos. So that, that's, that's a normal one. Dude, that's totally normal. Right. I, I've heard of people disclaiming I've I've heard of people disclaiming messages because they say that, that they regret by saying their phone was hacked, right? That's like right, yeah. pretty standard that you 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 regret a tweet, you say your phone was hacked uh, or your account was hacked. But this is this is a new one. This is oh oh that email, the one that I sent to see if someone else is hacking into my account. Um, that was just a, a sort of a a, a test. Right. Yeah. Um. <laughs> that every, everything you know about me is a lie. Okay. Friday, March 26, 2010. Hi, George. From Annie to George. Hi, George. Our relationship has been strictly professional and will continue to be conducted in a professional manner. The integrity and prosecution of my case depends on maintaining only a working relationship with you. Why does she give a shit about her case? Like like you, I have committed and dedicated myself to my job and work incredibly hard to maintain the utmost integrity and professionalism with all of my cases, except for the ones that I spike. Except for when I don't, right. <laughs> yeah. It, it is my responsibility to assure that all the chemists and following are, are following the policies and procedures accurately and maintain the quality control assurance of the lab. Dear God, how delusional. It is an enormous responsibility that I take very seriously. Oh my God. My colleagues call me superwoman and say that I do too much at the lab and everyone else in general. I, I am not a workaholic, but it is just in my nature to assist in any way possible. 
my professional life and my personal life are two completely different entities. Once I am at work or dealing with work-related issues, it is strictly business. As for my personal life, it will be dealt with outside of the work environment and have no bearing on my cases. I always have and always will continue to separate those two lifestyles. As I iterated above, our working relationship is strictly professional and has never been anything other than business. Sincerely, Annie. Definitely not written in anticipation of litigation. No. Okay. And so that was on February or on March 26th, right? On March 28th, two days later, Annie emails George what she calls pre-etiquette questions or predicate questions, P-R-E-D-I-C-A-T-E questions. And it says, see attached for answers to predicate questions. Also questions posed by defense counsel. I will get into more details later. Representative sampling, estimated weight, spot tests, non-spot tests, isomers, uh, she she lists a bunch of like different things to that that she's going to be asked by defense counsel and how she's going to respond. Well, I mean, like when you have an expert, that's not you know the, the craziest thing ever to go over your testimony in advance of trial. But you know, it's a different thing when they're like, "I am making this email right now to uh, make a record that we did not have an affair." <laughs> but is it so? So I guess there's going over testimony and then giving a, a attorney, a witness, giving an attorney the questions to ask the witness on the stand. Is that normal? Well, I mean, like if you don't have a thorough understanding of how a GCMS machine works, like I think that's fine. Here's yeah, what she I, said: <laughs> What is your name and how are you employed? How long have you been with the lab? What is your current position? Any experience with any other drug labs? Like, this is what she sent. I think that, to Chris's point, I think lawyers are expected. And, and, you know, I've had uh, uh, on occasion uh, uh, someone uh, question the um, lawyer's interactions with a witness uh, before during trial. And, and judges expect and, and, and appreciate that a, a good lawyer will actually know what the witness is going to say in advance. So there's, I agree. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a line that you can't cross, and that would be the line where you suborn a testimony that you know is incorrect. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, here, submitting questions to ask would be fine um, unless you had reason to believe or, the, or you knew the witness um, wanted you to ask these questions just so that uh, you could get, get a, an inaccurate response. So right. I think that this is sort of just really raising the question of what did any DA know about Annie Dukin or this lab prior to the May and June breach? Um, and so I think this would be interesting because now you have uh, another mode of interaction. And this has been your point, Jamie, and you've been pretty consistent on this that there shouldn't be a lot of interaction other than what's legitimate, of course, between prosecutors and lab uh, witnesses. Uh, and I think there was no real investigation into the quality or the, the, the net effect of those interactions, given what we later learned. Right. Yeah, like one of the things that made me worried in that list of questions that uh, you just went over, she talks about isomers. So that has to do with the cocaine microcrystalline test, which, as we've discussed ad nauseum, 
you know, you have to look through the microscope. And uh, we know from multiple other chemists, Lawler and uh, Leshy, and maybe additional chemists, that she wasn't doing that at all. So, you know, is she sending that question in order to, you know, make it easier for her to testify about something she didn't do? Like, that's sort of an interesting point that should have been looked right. at. And what, what did the questions deal with swig drug? Because, I mean, that's what's fascinating to me is, again, you know, we're told there was only one bad actor. But unless I'm mistaken, everybody testified and even Ms. Nassif uh, sent a letter which somehow ended up in the United States Supreme Court docket that says that the lab follows swig drug. And, and, and so that, uh, you know, was she, was she coaching him on the right question to get the right answer, which of course is, you know, an incorrect answer, but, but the desired answer, um, you know, that would be a concern to me as an investigator. Swig drug right. isn't there, Ilias, but guess what is cross-contamination. Hmm. <laughs> I, I can say that we don't there's do a lot it. of things to list there. I don't think it'll be right. great listening to, to listen to all of it, but it's just a ton of different stuff. But so remember when I referenced the post Melendez Diaz email between those two, it's from June 7th, 2010. Uh, and it says, I got to get going. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll save that one for uh, next time. Yeah, we'll save that one for next time. All right, guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening as always. And uh, we will be back soon. All right. See you next time. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Rick Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.